Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for those very kind words, Fiona, and thank you to the Institute for the invitation to come and speak this evening. Uh, as Fiona said, I will be talking about the site of Saruk al-Hadid and the scientific approaches which we're using in its investigation. And you can see a picture of the site and all its uh, remoteness on the screen in front of you. But before we get to Saruk al-Hadid, I thought I'd just spend a moment or two talking about what we mean by heritage science, and I was thinking about it and reading about it over the course of the last few days until I realised that, in fact, one of the best summaries I'd come across which captured the diversity was, in fact, in the invitation letter that Fiona sent out to me, which outlined the themes of this lecture series that you're, you're hearing one of the lectures of, and that is uh, constructing and reconstructing the past, how science and heritage uh, can combine to explain, interpret and present the past, the applied science angle that Fiona mentioned already, using science for conservation, analysis, uh, understanding sites and building narratives about the past, and of course, building biographies of objects through science, tracing the life histories of the artefacts that we excavate from the ground. And hopefully, uh, the example that I use from the site of Saruk al-Hadid uh, will allow me to talk to at least these three themes uh, in the Heritage Science Lecture Series. It is a bringing together of the uh, the two fields uh, of science and, and uh, humanities studies. So today I'm going to be talking largely about uh, the Saruk al-Hadid Archaeological Research Project, or SHARP, uh, which I've been running uh, since 2014. I'm going to introduce you to the date and the nature of the archaeological remains from the site of Saruk al-Hadid. And then I'm going to talk through some different examples and case studies of the scientific approaches that we use when studying the site ones which draw broadly on the sort of anatomical or taxonomic tradition of the sciences. In particular, I'm going to focus on bioarchaeology and some of our results in that area. And then I'm going to take a look at some case studies in a more material science or what we might call archaeomaterials approach uh, to the archaeological past. I'm going to tell uh, some of the individual stories from these case studies and hopefully bring them together uh, to talk about the changing nature of site use. And I hope at the end of the talk I will have demonstrated that Essentially, science and archaeology are inextricable in the way that, that modern archaeological research is conducted. But anyway, that's enough in the background. Onto the site itself, Saruk al-Hadid, which you can see where the, the red arrow and the number one is on the map here. Um, uh, as I said before, it's, it's located in the desert in Dubai, uh, close to the border with Abu Dhabi, in the dune fields at the northern edge of the Rebel Khali, and in probably the least likely uh, place you might expect to find a very rich late prehistoric archaeological site. Uh, the site was famously discovered by Sheikh Mohammed, the ruler of Dubai, uh, early in the 2000s as he was flying over the site. And what he noticed, of course, was this very distinct and different area of dark slag which was on the surface of the site. Uh, pretty soon thereafter, he visited the site with an archaeologist, Hussein Kandil, and what they saw when they looked closely on the ground uh, was even more amazing. Not only was this, this dark coating of material slag from metallurgical operations, but there were all kinds of incredible archaeological artefacts which were also immediately apparent on the surface of the site. And in that image on the lower right-hand side, you can see a cache of bronze arrowheads eroding out of the surface of the site. So a very intriguing and unexpected site uh, from the moment of its discovery. And since that time, around about 15 years ago, it's been the focus of fairly intensive field research by uh, a, a great number of projects under the direction of Dubai Municipality. Uh, so a Jordanian team began work there 
uh, from 2003 until 2006 or 7. That was followed by an American team uh, from Arkansas working between 2007 and 2009. And since 2014, it really has been uh, a series of, of teams and projects working side by side, literally side by side at the site uh, across its different areas of occupation. Uh, our Australian team, a German team, Polish team, a Spanish team, and also uh, the DM team working uh, as part of that, that mix as well. So what I'm talking about tonight is really just one part of what is a very large research effort at the site of Saruk al-Hadid. Uh, and yet our one small part has required the work of a small army. And uh, one thing I'd like to highlight in the talk tonight is uh, how many people it actually takes to do archaeological research and to do uh, heritage science at a site like Saruk al-Hadid. We've got our core team uh, of academics, many of whom were based at UNE, either doing PhD or postdoctoral research. Uh, we've got uh, dedicated field excavators. We've got a dedicated team of graphic uh, um, documentation and illustration. Uh, we've got an administrative side. We've got a whole suite of scientists uh, who are collaborating in the analysis of particular components of our material remains. And you can see just some of them on the screen there. And of course, uh, we have our collaborators at Dubai Municipality. Uh, in particular, we've worked very closely with Yaqub Yusuf Al-Ali and Mansur Baraik Radwan and Hassan Zain in coordinating our research at the site. Uh, throughout the course of the project. Uh, and one point I wanted to make just before we move further on here, I'm sorry I couldn't find uh, a, a better picture of you online, Helen. You're normally you're smiling and this one you're looking very serious. Um, but throughout this presentation, I'm going to show some beautiful images and graphic documentation uh, that are created by Helen David Cuny and her team. And I can't always acknowledge those at the point of that, the slide, so I wanted to highlight them and highlight the fact that this kind of recording is in fact one of the first stages in our scientific investigation and exploration of the material from the site and that the drawing is the first step in that analysis. So when you see the images, think of the work of Helene and her team. But before we get on to that, I'm going to talk about our excavations and these were directed by our field director, Dr Charlotte Cable. Uh, you can see there in front of you uh, the sandbags marking out the edges of some of the trenches that we excavated over the site over the last few years. Here's a map showing some of them, not quite up to date, I think overall we've excavated around 33 5 by 5 metre trenches through these deposits. Um, and I wanted to talk now about the results of that, that excavation, the sequence of occupation that we've been able to uh, develop through those excavations. And again, just pointing out the scientific components of this, relying on scientific documentation, both in written and graphical form, but also drawing on scientific principles now well known in archaeology, but ultimately deriving from other disciplines uh, like geography and geomorphology, the concepts of stratigraphy and taphonomy and site formation processes. Okay, so here's a picture of our, the area that we've been largely excavating at the site of Saruk al-Hadid. When we talk about the occupation there, it's very deep and complicated. Uh, it really is uh, a fairly complicated mixture of natural deposits mixed in with anthropogenic or human-made deposits. Uh, quite difficult to pull them apart. And when we talk about it and think about it now within our research group, we tend to characterise the occupation there uh, as a series of phases that we call horizons, uh, beginning at the top uh, with Horizon 1, uh, which dates to the early Iron Age in the first millennium BC and later, and working down through the deposits at the site through Horizons 2, 3, 4 and 5. And at the bottom of Horizon 5, we basically hit a gypsum pavement, which is the base of the archaeological occupation. And just in broad terms, I'll be talking about these terms later on, uh, Horizons 5 and 4, our earliest deposits date back to the Bronze Age, perhaps 4,000 years ago. 
and horizons two and three date back to the Iron Age around about 3,000 years ago. Uh, there's later deposits on top of this material. And so what I'm going to do now is just talk through uh, the nature of these horizons at the site. They begin at the base with Horizon 5 and Again, as is quite typical for much of the site, we don't really have much in the way of standing architecture. It's largely hearths and post holes, uh, which outline different kinds of structures which were built into the gypsum and into the low sand dunes which sit above that gypsum. We also see features like hearths, often nicely made stone-lined hearths, which are characteristic of the occupation at the site at around about this time. You can see Kerry Grant, one of our excavators, uh, half-sectioning one of the hearths during the course of excavations. Sitting on top of the low mound that was created by the Horizon 5 deposits, we've got the Horizon 4 bone midden. This is probably about 30 metres across, uh, up to a metre deep, and it's a really dense and intense set of occupation where literally hundreds of thousands of animal bones have been deposited after their processing and, and the eating of the, the flesh that was associated with them. In, in addition to the bones, we've got a small number of features, some informal hearths, which uh, make up these deposits as well. We've got the lone piece of standing architecture, if I can use that word to describe this small collection of rocks uh, at the site, which dates to Horizon 4, somewhere around 1500 BC, uh, literally the only connected bits of stone that we have at the site. Um, sitting on top of Horizon 4 is, is, a, is a thin, difficult to trace, complicated but quite interesting uh, horizon, which is characterised by unusual assemblages of artefacts. Uh, in particular, these incense burners or braziers, which occur in large numbers in that particular deposit. And you can see the kind of imagery, the snake imagery, which is characteristic uh, of these artefacts. And on the right-hand side, you can see a little assemblage of uh, these incense burners and some stones, which is characteristic for this horizon. On top of that, we've got the material which the site is justifiably famous for, the incredibly rich deposits of the early Iron Age in Horizon 2, where we find literally thousands of metal artefacts of all different kinds, incredible long iron swords. I think there's several dozen of these now that have been found. Uh, bronze uh, artefacts uh, by the thousands, in particular arrowheads. Beautiful examples of biometallic artefacts, uh, such as the ones in the bottom centre, which have bronze handles and iron blades. Uh, different kinds of ceramic vessels. Uh, on the left-hand side of the screen, you can see a very beautiful example of a carved shell. It's a very rich assemblage of artefacts uh, that the characteristic of these upper Horizon 2 deposits at the site. And this is where also uh, all of the, the gold and gold leaf jewellery, which uh, the site is also known for, has come from these upper level deposits. We can see uh, examples of earrings or perhaps nose rings on the left-hand side, different kinds of granulated gold jewellery on the right. At the lower right-hand side of the screen is the single largest gold piece that came from the site, which weighs around 33 grams and is a, a beautiful earring which shows uh, granulation and gold wire construction. We've got a very nice little plaque in gold sheet uh, showing a hare or a rabbit at the site. And we've also got lots of pieces which are much less impressive, scrap pieces of gold wire and sheet and this kind of thing which are also abundant throughout these upper deposits at the site. So very rich in artefacts, again, not so much in architecture. These few tumbled collections of stones uh, about all that we find associated with this layer occasionally, ephemeral post holes we might find in the dunes, uh, but really uh, nothing to talk about uh, in terms of structures. And capping the whole lot off in Horizon 1, we've got the, the so-called slag layer. You can see the very dark surface of the site, 
on the lower left-hand side, you can see up close a dense concentration of slag uh, that was found at the site. We've got large lumps of tap slag, which was clearly tapped out of a furnace at some point and collected into a pit during the copper smelting process. We've got pieces of ceramic or furnace wall, which tell us something about the technology of copper production at the site. Uh, but we've also got material that looks like Horizon 2. We've got arrowheads in bronze. We've got uh, iron artefacts, the handles of what look like iron swords and these kind of things which are coming out of these upper deposits as well. So, so broadly, that's the sequence that we've got. And just to give you a, a, a little bit on the scientific dating and understanding of the formation processes of the site, drawing on various techniques of applied physics and, and geomorphology, uh, certainly our AMS radiocarbon dates are pretty consistently now telling us a story uh, about the occupation of the site that begins in the early part of the second millennium BC or the very late third millennium BC, somewhere around 2000 or 1950 BC with Horizon 5 clearly dated to that 200-year period or the first quarter of the second millennium BC. On top of that, the relatively thick deposits of Horizon 4 are now well dated to a probably 400-year period or more between around about 1750 and 1300 BC. Getting higher again, uh, the Horizon 3 deposits, those difficult to track but important deposits which were characterised by pedestal vessels and braziers, date to the final quarter or last couple of centuries of the second millennium BC prior to 1000 BC. Horizon 2 deposits dating from 1000 BC to around about 800 BC. And we also have radiocarbon dates from the very upper deposits in Horizon 1, which also fall into the Iron Age. So that's our, our broadly our late prehistoric sequence at the site. But there are some complicating factors when we look at the very uppermost deposits of the site because it's in a very a mobile, active desert environment. It's clear that the actions of water and particularly wind have to some extent played havoc with the archaeological deposits at the site. And in some ways, we think it's analogous to what a geomorphologist would call a desert pavement. That is, it was originally a, a much more dispersed and differentiated deposit of smaller and heavier fragments, but the action of wind has gradually over time moved uh, and uh, blown away the lighter fragments of the deposits concentrating the heavier materials on a surface into a kind of a pavement until they were dense enough to stop any further wind erosion. And so we expect that there is quite a long time period that's captured in a very small deposit at the top of the site. Um, so this is what we think is the analogy for our Horizon 1 deposits. And in fact, when we look at our, uh, our dates for that sequence, we get some supporting evidence for that hypothesis. So we get very little material for radiocarbon dating uh, in the upper deposits, but because we can also use thermoluminescence dating, which allows us to date the little bits of ceramic uh, which we have attached uh, to copper smelting slag in abundant examples uh, in Horizon 1, uh, we've been able to do some thermoluminescence dates which tell us that Horizon 1 dates everywhere from the early Iron Age in the early centuries after 1000 BC to the late pre-Islamic period in the centuries between, say, 300 BC and 500 AD. We also have thermoluminescence dates which suggest that smelting was happening at the site in the early Islamic period in the 9th and 10th centuries AD. So within a 10 or 20 centimetre um, deposit at the site and sometimes from the same context we can get dates which are separated by 1,000 or 2,000 years. So a lot of activity uh, deflated down into these upper deposits. So that is the chronological framework that we've been able to establish for our excavations at the site. They're giving us a picture of long-term, persistent, temporary and probably seasonal use of Saruk al-Hadid 
during late prehistory from the Bronze Age uh, right through potentially the late pre-Islamic period and into the Islamic period as well. And what I want to explore just uh, with five examples is how we can assess and examine the changes in the human use of Saruq al-Hadid through time. And as I said before, I'm going to focus on bioarchaeological work, which has been done by Claire Newton, Adrian Parker and James Roberts, and some archaeomaterial studies that have been undertaken by Christina Franca, Steve Karasik and Ivan Stepanov. Okay, first uh, to the bioarchaeological studies. These have the potential to tell us about a range of things at the site, in particular subsistence activities, past environments, and also, as you'll see in some of the examples, exchange, contacts, potentially movement of people around the landscape as well. Um, uh, the major approach we've been using are uh, uh, archaeobotanical and anthropological approaches. What does that mean? It means that we're, uh, we're interested in plant macro remains like seeds and grains, which we might find at the site. Usually these are preserved by carbonisation. They're burnt in the past and they're therefore able to be found. Uh, during excavations, we're interested in charcoal remains more generally of wood species. Here's a picture of uh, some charcoal under the microscope from uh, a piece of ash wood. But at Saruq al-Hadid, unexpectedly, we also have significant amounts of wood from the early, the early Iron Age deposits which are preserved as well. So we can study the wood itself and the wood anatomy in order to work out what kind of species which were being used at the site. Um, we talk a lot about artefacts in archaeology, but uh, most of this critical information comes from the study of the sediments at the site. So we process this either by dry sieving or, or more commonly we process this through um, sediment flotation, exploiting the fact that the charcoal will float to the top on the water and can be separated off from the sand and other sediments that's associated within the ground. So this allows us to collect the material, uh, but it also features many more traditional elements of botanical field research. So Claire Newton, who's doing all of this work for us, also does collections of plants in the local environment of the site and further afield, uh, partly for comparative purposes, so she can, she can compare the anatomy of those to the material that she's finding in our excavations, but also to understand the distribution of different plant species around the site in the current environment. And that allows her to assess the material that's coming out of the, the archaeological context from the site. Uh, when we look at the Bronze Age deposits and we look at the archaeobotanical results, Claire has been able to find some evidence for food consumption. Uh, dates, for example, are found, uh, nub uh, fruits from the Sisyphus tree. We've got very sparse remains of cereal grains as well. It's very unlikely that these were in fact grown at the site and they probably suggest uh, contacts with some of the nearby, not too distant oases um, uh, far, further away from the site. When we look at the charcoal remains as opposed to the seeds and the grains, uh, what we're seeing is a picture that looks much more local. We're seeing acacia and caligonum tree, uh, shrubs, desert trees and shrubs, all available locally and probably used to, to fuel the fires that were, were um, started on the site. We also have work on pollen and phytolith remains. Phytoliths, these small uh, silica skeletons that survive quite well. Uh, in archaeological contexts and which can be quite diagnostic of different plant species. These are being studied by Adrian Parker at Oxford Brookes University and uh, again they rely on the, the processing of the sediment from the site in order to access these samples. Uh, so Adrian's work is really just getting going um, but his preliminary studies, here's an example just from one context, a hearth in our Bronze Age deposits, 
which suggests uh, that in terms of pollen, there's very good preservation and a, a broad representation of species that you expect would expect in a semi-arid zone, suggesting that the environment of the site is not too dissimilar to its present one. The phytolith preservation is also quite good. Uh, a mix of C3 and C4 plants, sedges, including sand sedge, which probably indicates a mobile dune environment at the site uh, during this period. Some woody taxa, possibly the presence of date palm as well. Um, so broadly, an assemblage that suggests a, a fire that was uh, built up using local wood and grasses from the, from the local environment and fired at relatively low temperatures. So together, the archaeobotany and the anthropology and the phytolith and the pollen studies are providing a fairly coherent picture about what the site environment looked like at the time and the kinds of activities that were going on there. Uh, this is somewhat of a contrast from the Iron Age where when occupation expands uh, radically at the site over a much larger area, in our small zone where we've been digging, we've actually found no plant food consumption remains at all. Uh, the fuel remains look quite similar to what they looked like in the Bronze Age. We're getting local uh, species like acacia, caligonum and other um, uh, shrubs which are being used at the site to fuel their fires. So this picture of local uh, sort of fuel usage uh, then contrasts quite strongly with what we're seeing from the wooden remains which date to the Iron Age where uh, from the 15 taxa that have been identified, almost all of them are unavailable locally. So they're telling us a very different story. Uh, species like acacia, olive wood, cedar, oleander, mangrove, pine and ash come from very diverse sets of landscapes uh, from the mountains for the olive trees, from mountain wadis or oases for the cedar. Uh, there's some local species being used as well. Connections with the coast are indicated by the use of the mangrove wood. And when we look at species like pine and ash, they're clearly exotic in a southeastern Arabian context. They're not from this region. They're perhaps from the East Mediterranean, perhaps from the Zagros in Iran, somewhere quite distant from this region, so suggesting a very different picture. We originally thought that the olive, uh, in fact, might be uh, foreign as well, but there are quite uh, substantial numbers of olive trees growing in the Oman Mountains, so that's probably a local resource. Okay. If we move uh, from looking at the archaeobotanical material to looking at the, the animal remains, these are being studied by James Roberts at UNE, who's a PhD student with us. Uh, you can see, again, a picture of Horizon 4 there with the dense uh, deposits of animal bones. Uh, one morning of excavation can produce literally thousands of pieces of bone, and all of these uh, have to be studied individually by James. Um, he studied hundreds of thousands of them by this stage of his PhD, uh, he also uses techniques which are uh, in some ways parallel those used by Claire for the archaeobotany in the sense that he also relies on reference collections of modern materials. Here's a camel reference skeleton that was collected uh, from the side of the road uh, but which now helps to facilitate James's work identifying some of this material at the site. Um, as I said, hundreds of thousands of fragments have been studied. This is a data table uh, that's a little old now from James's work. If you look in the lower right-hand side, you'll see the total is 170-odd thousand pieces of bone. I think it's over 300,000 now. So there's a lot of data there. And, and for the Bronze Age, uh, for Horizons 5 and 4, we've got a, quite an interesting assemblage of different sorts of animals. And again, this is telling us different stories about the nature of human use and activities at the site. We've got domesticates like sheep and goat, which are being brought to the site by the people uh, uh, for uh, herding and grazing. We've got animals which are being hunted at the site, small animals like hares or lizards, 
but also large animals, uh, oryx, gazelle, camel, which are being hunted in significant numbers uh, during the Bronze Age. We've got uh, some animals that are living locally, some rodents and other kind of creatures that are probably occupying the deposits at the site. We've got an interesting range of bird species, which are telling us that the site may have been slightly more wooded in the past. The example on the far left is the cormorant. So again, uh, a species which is probably being brought to the site from the coast. Uh, so again, telling us something about the regional connections of the site. And that coastal connection is also emphasised by uh, the abundance of fish remains uh, in different deposits at the site as well. So we're starting to see a picture of a very diverse and connected site during the Bronze Age as a result of these bioarchaeological studies. Again, as we move from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, the zooarchaeological work tells us a story of change. On the left-hand side, uh, you can see an example of a horn core from an oryx, which shows the marks of cutting by a person who was processing that. And on the right-hand side, we've got a series of graphs, which I'll work through now, which show us how things are changing through time. So on the column on the furthest right, we've got the data on skeletal element percentages for three different species. On the top right, we've got gazelle. In the middle right, we've got oryx. And at the bottom right, we have camels. And these are all from Horizon 4. And when we look down those charts, we see a very familiar pattern, or a similar pattern, that is, which suggests that by and large, all of the parts of the animal are being found on the site. We interpret this as the fact that these animals were being hunted and their, their carcasses were being brought back to the site and they were being processed on the site and probably eaten on the site, although it's possible that the meat was also transported elsewhere afterwards. It's a very different picture when we move from Horizon 4 into Horizon 2, from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, when, as you can see in the green rectangle, all uh, of those skeletal element percentages look radically different. Instead of seeing all of the components of the carcass, we're just seeing specific ones. And in fact, what we're seeing is heads and the ends of legs. And essentially, James, our zooarchaeologist, is interpreting this as evidence for hide processing because these are the last elements of the skeleton which remain attached to the hide before it gets processed. So he thinks that it's more an industrial use of this material which we're finding in the Iron Age at our site. Okay, so I'm going to move now from those case studies of uh, bioarchaeology to talk about a few case, study, uh, case studies from archaeomaterials analysis, which can tell us about or contribute to our understanding of conservation and preservation of materials, uh, of the raw materials that were being used at the site, of fabrication technologies, and also of provenance and exchange systems in the past. Uh, obviously, with thousands of artefacts being unearthed, Annually at Saruk al-Hadid, there's a very large conservation program uh, which is ongoing at the site. Uh, as you can see by this example of piece SA5167, it has the capacity to turn uh, pretty uh, much unidentifiable lumps of corroded material uh, into incredibly beautiful, revealing the beauty of the objects that are, uh, remain underneath and also stabilising them and preserving them for the future. So it's, it's a very com important component of the work at the site. Uh, a nice paper has just been published by the group of conservators who are working on the Saruk al-Hadid material. It's in the International Journal of Trends in Research and Development. Uh, and they outline current principles and best practice in conservation. And we're going to talk about these in just a little bit of detail because uh, they contrast or create uh, interesting issues and challenges when it comes to understanding the archaeological record of the site. Um, in particular, they focus on maximum respect to objects in their entirety, on minimal intervention and on the reversibility of all of the conservation processes that they enact. 
They also have a series of requirements around legibility, stability, sustainability, their documentation, and collaborating uh, in, in ways that are multi and interdisciplinary in order to understand these materials. And you can imagine how scientific approaches that are non-invasive, such as X-radiography, could contribute to the cons conservation efforts of material from the site. And as an example, I'm just going to call on this piece a completely undistinguished uh, lump of corroded metal from the site, SA14211. Uh, the X-ray analysis of this material revealed entirely unexpected detail. There's a little bit of a close-up on the lower left-hand side. Very complex and elaborate construction of this artefact, which wouldn't have been known otherwise. And that knowledge can feed into the processes which are then applied uh, to conserve this artefact. Uh, to remove some of that corrosion, to bring it back to a position which is closer to how it may have looked in the past. However, those three first guiding principles, especially minimal intervention and reversibility, sometimes work against the goals of archaeological material science and the study of materials remains. And archaeology is always a debate around these issues because a lot of the information that we can learn by using material science's approaches involves small-scale, invasive, sometimes destructive analyses. So we've got some techniques which cause no destruction whatsoever, like X-ray analysis. We've got other techniques which cause destruction at a very small scale, usually not visible to the naked eye. But there are other kinds of analyses which are much more destructive or invasive. And we usually use a suite of these because it's not as though we can only use non-destructive techniques because they all have different resolution, accuracy, precision, different power, they can tell us different things. And so usually we try and develop an approach to studying these artefacts which uses a range of different non-destructive, micro-destructive and more invasive techniques. And of course that's going to depend on the sort of object you're studying. One of a kind, unique, precious, museum quality pieces are only ever going to be studied non-invasively. You might feel different about a carbonised date stone that's found at the site, found in small numbers but we're going to use some of them for radiocarbon dating probably because they're very ideal for that purpose. Morphometric studies, they might be destroyed as part of that process. You might feel different again about potsherds which are found in their hundreds or thousands and which are fragmented. You might feel different again about the thousands of kilograms of slag from the site which are frankly not really ever going to be shown in a museum and which can really only reveal their secrets through more invasive analysis. So when I talk about these examples from material science, they use a combination of, of more destructive and less destructive techniques, which is always a balanced consideration of what uh, is best for developing knowledge of the site while still preserving the remains that are found there. So we can use X-rays or neutron tomography or PXRF analyses if we want to learn non-destructively about our artefacts. We can use SEM imaging, which can be non-destructive or destructive in different contexts. We can use micro-destructive techniques like laser ablation, ICPMS, to learn a little bit more about our sites and we can use quite invasive techniques like metallography or petrography if we want to go a bit further and learn more about our samples. And what you'll see in these examples is that we've used usually a suite of analyses to try and draw as much information as we can about these artefacts uh, from the evidence that we have at hand. So the first one I wanted to talk about was our ceramics. These are of course amenable to totally non-destructive typological study. Uh, we can look at their form and shape and describe them and learn a lot about them that way. Um, but once we start looking beyond the shape uh, and into the actual material that, they, that pottery is made from, we can also learn a lot more. 
And I wanted to talk about uh, the study of the ceramic fabrics and wares from our site, uh, which is a, a key part of the work which is being done there. When we look not at the vessels themselves but at the, the paste that they're made from, we can see lots of variation. We've got a range of wear types, which you can see on the left-hand side of the screen here, which have different colours and different textures and different inclusions. These are all examples of wares that are imported to the site from outside southeastern Arabia. But I'm going to focus uh, in this example on these typical Iron Age wares which we find at the site, which you can see different colours, all orangish, but different colours and textures and different inclusions and what their analysis can tell us. Uh, this work is being done by Steve Karasik, uh, our ceramicist in association with Sophie Marie and Anne Benoit. And he's been able to do uh, a beautiful study which looks at the range of different kinds of wares at the site. He listed A, B, C, D, E, etc., and how their proportions vary through time. Uh, this fundamental uh, information is useful for us in, in reconstructing changing technology and changing provenance and, and connections or economic connections. But we can take that a step further if we can apply a more high-power technique like neutron activa activation analysis in this sense, which allows us to do the trace element compositions of these different wear groups and to really pull them apart. Uh, and so we can see uh, Fabric D, for example, handmade courseware is distinguishable from Fabric E, the orange gritware, um, when we do these kind of detailed analyses. That sort of work is critical for us when we go back and look at our ceramic assemblage. Here's a, a group of pedestaled vessels or incense burners from Horizon 3, which show a tremendous amount of variability in their ceramic fabric. This to us is telling us about potentially multiple production loci. And then we have to think about mechanisms by which this pottery produced in multiple locations was coming together to one site like Saruk al-Hadid. And that's where we start to get the human element to the, the scientific story of variation in the ceramic fabrics. I'll move on and talk uh, about the next example of copper metallurgy, which is being studied by Christina Franca, who is the analytical director for our project. She studies not only the artefactual remains, uh, like arrowheads or swords or, or ingots, but a whole suite of materials that are related to copper metallurgy at the site. Uh, uh, there are uh, technical ceramics from furnace walls. Uh, there are ingots. There are semi-products. There are material which looks like it's in the process of being recycled. So it's a very diverse assemblage. And here we face a, another of the challenges of heritage science and what separates heritage science from some uh, more traditional applications of scientific techniques uh, is that our material has been changed by its centuries and millennia in the ground. As you can see uh, on the right-hand side of the slide, we've got very corroded lump of copper, an incredibly corroded piece of iron. This is the raw material that the heritage scientist has to work with. Sometimes, as you can see in the example on the upper left-hand side, uh, which is in a polished section, the corrosion can be relatively superficial and behind that there'll be very well-preserved metal. In other cases, as in the example in the middle left, there'll be a little bit of metal left behind. In other cases, as in the example at the bottom, there'll be virtually no metal left in the sample at all. And certainly uh, the preservation of iron remains at the site is often even worse than our, our bronze remains. Sometimes we have a little iron preserved, but more often our samples look like this. It's just corrosion. And it's not just materials being oxidised. It can be wickedly complicated chemical processes happening in the burial environment which can leach out one component of a sample from a, a copper tin alloy, redeposit pure copper and corrode the tin out of the sample. So you actually get new compositions being formed in that over time that never existed in the past. 
So these are the challenges that we face when we look at this material. And I'll just talk through some of the approaches that have been used. Uh, Christina started off her work with non-destructive analyses using portable X-ray fluorescence analyses. These were able to tell us at a basic level the different kinds of alloys that are being used. Here's a beautiful cache of arrowheads that were was found at the site. Being able to take the portable X-ray fluorescence machine, aim it at these arrowheads and record their composition told us that they were largely made of tin bronze. They were fairly consistent in their composition. Uh, you can see an example of an X-ray spectrum generated by this technique on the right-hand side. However, if we want to draw more out of those materials, we usually need to use a different range of approaches. We also have done trace element analyses using ICPMS, and they tell us about different trace element patterns between the, the tin bronzes, between the different copper alloys at the site, um, which tell us about different compositional groups and potentially different sources for this material. But given that, that so much of the material is so abundant at the site and so much of the slag uh, is not are going to be displayed in the museum at any point. We also undertake substantial amounts of more destructive analyses on some of this material. And in this case, we're using the technique of metallography, which involves, as you can see here, mounting small pieces of these samples in epoxy resin and polishing them smooth. Uh, and then we look at them under a microscope, and this can tell us about their composition, their, their technology, and key parameters of some of the smelting processes that we see at the site. I'll just talk through some of that now. So We've got analyses of primary smelting slag, which tell us about the nature of the ores uh, that were being used at the site and some of the temperatures that they were reaching. Uh, you can see on the lower left-hand side uh, a, a large piece of ore which is semi-reacted and included in, uh, still in the slag, which is telling us they're processing sulphide ores. And in particular, we can look at the metal that they were producing at the site and we can see that they were struggling. They were producing metal that was very, very full of impurities, the metal thereafter is the copper, which is this nice copper reddish orange colour. But what they're producing is metal that is full of impurities of iron and sulphur, uh, sometimes 20, 30, 40% or more. So it really looks to us like we're looking at a nascent technology. It's, it's one that's being worked through and people are actually pro developing new technologies to process different kinds of ore that they'd never processed in the past. And we know that the Iron Age is the beginning of this technology in southeastern Arabia when they begin to be able to process complex sulfidic ores. The result of that, the result of this, this wrestling with a new material is that they can produce much more copper than they could in the Bronze Age. They have access to much bigger ore deposits. The challenge, of course, is to get copper out of this very difficult material. And that's what we're seeing through our scientific analyses. And the final example which I'm going to move on to now is to consider iron use at the site. And this gets raised when we consider copper because it's clear that when they were producing copper, they were also inadvertently smelting iron at this site. This is a uh, section of an, of an ingot of copper, but all of these silver areas that you can see with these unusual shapes, they're actually metallic iron that was being smelted at the same time that was mixed in with the copper. And I did wonder when we began work at the site whether all of the iron work that we saw somehow related to the iron that was being produced during copper smelting. Now, my PhD, PhD student, uh, Ivan Stepanov, who's studying this material, says that is absolutely not the case. Okay, The, the iron uh, remains which we find at the site in abundance, uh, several hundred kilograms of this material, are totally unrelated to the copper metallurgy that's happening at the site. Uh, there's uh, some examples of the iron remains that you can see on the screen there. Some of the material is beautiful, even if heavily corroded, large swords, bimetallic material. Most of it, however, uh, looks much less impressive. It's just corroded, 
lumps of metal. And this is the material that Ivan has had the pleasure of working on for his PhD for the last three years. Incredibly challenging. Uh, he's used some non-invasive techniques like x-rays to try and study welding lines. He's used very high-powered neutron tomography to create three-dimensional internal models of this uh, material to try and work out how it was fabricated. But ultimately, um, uh, here's an example of some of the forging techniques that he's been able to reconstruct through that work. But ultimately, he's relied on more invasive techniques and particularly optical metallography. And this has allowed him a few interesting insights into the iron remains. Firstly, he's been able to look at whether they were able to turn iron into steel, whether they were producing uh, iron which had significant levels of carbon in. And here you can see some examples of real microstructures from Saruk al-Hadid artefacts, which usually show in grey the corroded areas and where we have uncorroded material, it's this whitish silvery colour. And the various structures that Ivan is able to observe in those can tell him about the levels of carbon. It's the most studied alloy uh, um, in, in engineering terms in the world. So we have a very good idea of what it looks like under the microscope. And he can relate these microstructures to different levels of steel, mild and medium steel, which we're finding at the site. And the evidence suggests that they, these artefacts are occasionally of steel, but they're very heterogeneous. They probably weren't intentionally made uh, of steel at this point. But because most of the material is very heavily uh, corroded, he's forced to rely not on the, anal the analyses of the small remaining islands of metal, but on these smaller inclusions of slag which are found throughout the samples. Uh, they're stretched out and they're bashed around, but they're still in there from the smelting process. And Ivan's study of these and of the morphology has demonstrated quite conclusively that despite our hundreds of kilograms of iron artefacts, there's absolutely no evidence for primary iron making at the site whatsoever. I can contrast this uh, with the, the much smaller assemblage of iron uh, from Peter McGee's site of Mawela, which might only amount to 20 or so pieces. But even within that small assemblage, there is evidence for iron working, for iron smithing. Nothing like that in the much bigger assemblage from Saruk al-Hadid. And so Ivan's chemical studies of these slag inclusions using ICPMS and SEM and, and plotting out the different trace element patterns actually has suggested uh, quite strongly uh, a hypothesis that supports the typological parallels, which is that this material is coming all the way from Iran, probably from Luristan in western Iran, uh, and reaching south southeastern Arabia in the early Iron Age as a result of these international trade connections rather than any local development of iron technology. Okay. But that iron material at the site, although it may not have been produced in southeastern Arabia, appears to have had a second life. At some point after this material was deposited in the early Iron Age, it appears that it looks like someone's come back and tried to recycle this material. We can see that in the morphology of some pieces, which look like they were knocked about. Uh, we can see Ivan, uh, I mean, I don't have time to talk through this image. Ivan's work has been truly amazing in trying to pull out the microscopic differences in iron oxide phases in these entirely corroded samples. And what he's been able to find is evidence for the, the reheating of these artefacts after they were already rusted and deposited in the ground, different tools that were used for their uh, final recycling as opposed to their initial fabrication. It looks as though someone was coming to the site, scavenging this material and assaying it, knocking it about to see if there was any good iron left in it and then taking it away. And so the iron that was deposited in the Iron Age actually had a second life. It's hard to tell when, maybe the late pre-Islamic period, maybe in the Islamic period when it was being recycled and reused. 
Okay. Those are the case studies I wanted to talk about. I, I know time's running short and I want to, to wrap it up. We've got lots of other evidence for a production at the site in the Iron Age. There's been a lovely paper recently published by a Spanish team uh, who are working in association with the Spanish team digging at Saruk al-Hadid, who've looked at gold, uh, the evidence for gold working in production at the site, uh, which is quite clear now. Other precious metals and lead and antimony also seem to be being used there as well. There's very good evidence for uh, the production of and crafting other, of other materials, including bone, uh, there's bead making using various raw materials happening at the site as well. And this appears to be shell working and the crafting of very uh, elaborately decorated shells at the site as well. Although, again, the evidence is kind of limited. Nevertheless, overall, when we bring these different strands of evidence together, uh, we bring the archaeology, the archaeometry, the archaeobotany and the zoo archaeology together, we've got a pretty, pretty convincing case for a dramatic transition in the use and occupation of the site from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. A picture that looks like moving from subsistence to one which looks like it has a dramatic focus on craft production. So we've got the evidence that I mentioned for copper production, for gold, for shell bone, for hide and for wood. No evidence for iron production but for that recycling later on. This dramatic diversification of organic and inorganic raw materials at the site, which is happening at the Bronze Age to Iron Age transition. And this is really the story of what those scientific analyses is telling us. Um, it occurs at exactly the same time as we see this dramatic elaboration of the, what we're calling the ritual component of the site, the expansion of the use of snake images and the deposition of all of this material in different kinds of archaeological deposits. It's when Saruk becomes the famous Saruk with all of the material that's uh, now filling the Saruk al-Hadid Museum. That, however, is a, a different story and a story that I'll probably try and cover maybe in a different talk. Tonight I wanted to talk about our scientific approaches to the site and uh, I, I hope you've enjoyed that. So thank you very much. And thank you to our sponsors of our work. Thanks. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.